All right, if you would, take your Bible and turn to the book of Daniel. If you have a phone that has access to God's Word, feel free to pull that out as well. Uh, Daniel is in the Old Testament. Probably the easiest way to find it is if you open to the middle of your Bible. Sometimes you land in Psalms. Sometimes you land in a book called Isaiah. But if you open to the middle and go to the right just a little bit, you'll go past a couple of books, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. And then you get to the book of Daniel. And we are going to begin a new series of messages over the next few weeks looking at the book of Daniel. If you helped out with Vacation Bible School last summer, you have a little bit of a head start because our kids learned about Daniel this past summer in in Vacation Bible School. But we're going to look at it from a big picture in big church and think about how this scripture applies to our lives in the 21st century just to follow up for a second on what both of the Jameses said earlier in the service, the ladies' paint party that's coming up in two Friday nights, the proceeds from that are going to go toward a program that we're calling Backpack Buddies, borrowing from our friends at First Baptist New Orleans. But essentially, it is designed to provide food to under-resourced kids in local elementary who aren't able to have access to good food over the weekend. And so this will allow us to be able to provide some food to some of those kids. If you're interested in being involved with that and helping with that, we need some people who would be able to go out and purchase the food, just take a list to the store and buy what's needed. Uh, We need some people who would be willing to pack the food in some of those bags. It wouldn't take very long, but just to be able to pack those bags and, and deliver them to the school. If you're interested in helping out with that, after the service, if you go through this door right here, my wife Amanda will be at the table to sign up for the paint party, and she'll also be able to give you some information about that food ministry. As well as, don't forget, after the service, to go through the door and pick up those prayer cards that James was talking about earlier. Our family, we take those prayer cards and we put them around a large world map that's in our house, and it helps our kids and, our, and us as well to remember all the people we know of around the world who are sharing the hope of Christ. And so take that prayer card home, put that on your refrigerator, put it on your wall somewhere so uh, your kids and grandkids and neighbors will be able to, to see that. All right, Daniel chapter 1. If you would, let's stand in honor of reading God's Word. Daniel 1 is a rather lar- a long chapter. We're just going to read verses 1 through 9 right now, and then we'll cover the rest in summary a little bit later. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians, The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. 
to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. If you watch the VeggieTale movies, it's Shackrack and Benny, if you have trouble with those, uh, those names. But um, verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Daniel, the way that it has the ability to speak to the mind of a child, and it has the ability to speak to us as adults who admittedly still act like children sometimes, but we need to hear your word in clear ways. Father, may we hear it and apply it to our lives today by the work of your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. How do we live for the Lord in a world that is opposed to him and to his ways? How do you live for a world, or how do you live for the Lord in a world that has been wrecked by sin? We see the results of sin through suffering. We see the results of sin through nations and families and individuals who live lives opposed to the ways of God. And the question is, how do we know God, worship him, and live for him in a world that is set up that way. But even as I ask those questions as a way to start a sermon series in the book of Daniel, what we have to remember is that people did not begin to turn against the Lord this past summer. The world didn't become wrecked by sin only beginning in the 20th century. From Genesis 3, people have been opposed to the ways of the Lord. He created people in his image to live for him and to bring him glory to steward this world that he has created. And yet scripture shows us what it looks like for people to turn against God, to go their own way, to try to live in this world that's been wrecked by sin and suffering. How do we do that? The book of Daniel probably does a better job than any other story or piece of scripture to help us to answer that question in the 21st century of what does it look like to live for God in a world that is completely opposed to him. The reason it's so helpful is because Daniel and his friends are taken into a world, they're sent into exile into a world that is completely opposed to God and his ways. And the book of Daniel shows us what it looks like to continue to know God and continue to worship him in that type of world. If you look back in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. You can see on the screen that if you're trying to get a feel for what's going on in world history, this is about the year 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar has just won a crucial battle against the Egyptians at a place called Carchemish. He's come from that battle and he's moving in to take power and he's going to come into Jerusalem and begin to besiege the city. And ultimately, in 586 B.C., the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed and Judah is essentially destroyed, never to be brought back again until you get into um, the late first century B.C. and then the people begin to be- come back together. But there's something interesting that's happening here. If you were to ask a modern historian why Nebuchadnezzar was able to come in and defeat Jerusalem, 
the modern historian would say it was because he had a more powerful army. His strategy was better, his kingdom was more put together, his army was more powerful than what the Jerusalem people were able to put up. And so that's the reason he took Jerusalem. If you were to ask the ancient Babylonians why they were able to defeat Jerusalem, they would tell you it was because their gods were more powerful than the God of Jerusalem, who the people there called Yahweh. And they would say the reason we came in and destroyed Jerusalem is because our gods were better than their God. But if you were to ask the question of the Bible, why were the Babylonians able to defeat Jerusalem? It says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar didn't defeat anybody on his own strength. The Lord was ultimately in control of what was happening here. And I realize that this is ultimately a matter of perspective, but it helps us to understand the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel is very similar to the book of Revelation in the New Testament, if you need a way to to correlate the two. The book of Daniel is what we call apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic is a million-dollar word that just means unveiling or, or revealing. Apocalyptic literature is designed to reveal something that you couldn't understand on your own or you couldn't see with your own eyes. And so the book of Daniel is designed to reveal something that is true about God and the work he's doing among his people, even though it didn't make sense to their eyes at that time. And so it's revealing that ultimately the Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar the city of Jerusalem. He was the one who was in charge. In verse 2 there, where it says he delivered him into his hand along with some of the articles from the temple, and these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and he put in the treasure there. When it says that he carried them off, the idea there is he brought them to the land of Shinar. Some translations will say Babylonia there, but but understanding Shinar there is more important because in Genesis chapter 11, there's a story there about the building of a tower called Babel. And the tower of Babel was built in the plain of Shinar, the same exact place that the Babylonian kingdom was located. The tower of Babylon, or the tower of Babel, represented, represented ultimate human pride ultimate rejection of the ways of the Lord. And so the same place that the Tower of Babel was built was the same place that Daniel and his friends were taken into exile. It says there that Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, brought some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and the nobility. Those references are important because it reveals that what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do is he knew if he could strike at the heart of the civilization. If he could go to those people who were most high-ranking, who had the most to offer to the civilization, then he would literally just cut the country out at its knees. If you need a way to understand this, there's actually a parallel in contemporary history. In the mid-1970s through 1979, in the country of Cambodia, which is located in Southeast Asia, there was a ruler by the name of Pol Pot, Pol Pot was the head of a group called the Khmer Rouge. And the Khmer Rouge came into power in Cambodia in 1975. And from 75 to 79, Pol Pot and his regime carried out one of the worst genocides, one of the worst mass killings in in modern history. 
there were millions of Cambodians that were killed during that time. When I was in Cambodia in 2004, you can go to these places called the killing fields. Some of you may have seen some modern movies that were made uh, about, this, about this story. But it, the concentration camps there that look very much like what you would have seen uh, with the Nazis in Germany. And so Pol Pot knew part of his strategy was that he went after the doctors, he went after the artists, he went after the intellectuals, he went after the nobility, because he knew if he targeted his attacks at those people, he would cut the civilization off, not only immediately, but for generations to come. And Nebuchadnezzar is doing that same thing with the people of Judah. He's coming in, he's going after the royalty and the nobility. If you look in verse 4, it says that these young men that he went after were without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand. This is how you all describe your grandsons, is exactly like verse 4 here. Or, or this is who you want your daughters to marry. Just look at Daniel 1-4 and go find that guy and marry him, not the other losers. And, and, but you get an idea that this is who Nebuchadnezzar was going after. He was going after the, the core of the Jewish people. He wanted to take the very best. Down in verse 5, it says, The king, when he brought them to Babylon, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained there for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. And not only that, but when they got there, the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. These names that show up in blue, I know it tests your eyesight a little bit, but the ones that show up in blue that their names were changed to, each of those names in blue, those new names that they received, reflects a Babylonian god. So part of those names reflects a Babylonian god. So he took their names, their good Jewish names, and he gave them names that reflected Babylonian gods because he wanted to literally re-educate them. He wanted them to become good Babylonian men, not good Jewish boys. Daniel and his friends, and this was shocking to me, I'd forgotten this about the book of Daniel. Daniel and his friends were most likely right around 15 years old when they were taken into captivity. So sometimes we have this idea that they were in their 20s or 30s. They were most likely right around 15, 16 years old when they were taken into captivity. And they were taken there, and they were taught all the ways of the Babylonians. They were given these new names, essentially to conform them to the pattern of Babylonian life. You get down there in verse 8, and you notice what Daniel does when he gets there. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the, key, the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. What we find out just a little bit later is instead of the king's food and the king's drink, Daniel asked for vegetables and water. Now, I have to be honest with you. My history with vegetables is very much a love-hate relationship, as in I just love to hate them. I, I just want nothing to do with, with vegetables. I grew up in a family where we primarily ate fried food. We ate good southern cooking, just good fried food. On the rare chance that we had a vegetable, 
it was probably fried as well. So uh, that was kind of our, our approach. Amanda introduced me to a new way of eating that involved fresh green things and fresh red things. And so I've, I've had to reacclimate my diet to be able to deal with, uh, deal with vegetables. I'm, I'm doing a lot better. It's amazing what a salad can taste like when it's covered in bacon bits and croutons and, and dressing. It's amazing how it works out that way. So uh, that's my relationship with vegetables. The point being, though, and, and sometimes our interpretation of Daniel falls off the wagon at this point, the story of Daniel is not primarily about your diet. The story of Daniel is primarily about defilement. Now, there are books out there about Daniel diets Nothing wrong with those books. It matters what we eat. What we eat shows the way that we're seeking to glorify the Lord with, with our bodies. And I know that we could probably raise our hands and find 25 crazy diets that we're all on in, in this room right now. There's nothing wrong with that. Some of you may have done Daniel fast where you only had vegetables and water for, for 10 days. You'd have to put me in a straitjacket probably if I, if I tried that. But I haven't tried that in particular diet. But the point of Daniel is he does not want to eat these foods, not because he thinks they're unhealthy, but because they would defile him. Most likely the food that he was being offered had just before that been offered to an idol. That's the issue that Daniel's running into. If you need a New Testament relationship here, write down a note to go back and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is talking to the people there about not being involved with food that has been offered to idols. Because these pagan religions, they would offer it as a sacrifice to their statue, and then they would take the food, this really good, high-quality food, and they would give it to whoever the high-ranking people were. And so Daniel was saying, I don't want this food because it's been offered to another God, to a false God, and I'm only going to follow the ways of my God. And instead of it getting him killed, he's actually given a chance to carry this out. And we find down in verse 17, you'll have to jump ahead maybe a, a page in your Bible or scroll down in your phone. But after Daniel and his friends survive these vegetables and water for 10 days, it says that they look healthier. Uh, verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. I highlighted the words God gave because those are the same words that showed up in verse 2 about how God gave the city of Jerusalem into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. The story of Daniel 1 is that God is ultimately in control. He is the one who gives. He is the one who orchestrates these events. You get down to verse 20 in chapter 1, and it says, In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus, which was around 538 B.C. when the people were allowed to return to the land. So you see the way that Daniel is brought to this position of power. This story probably sounds familiar to another story that you've heard of in the Old Testament. It's the story of Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, 
He goes down to the country of Egypt. He's faced with all of these temptations, and God is merciful to him, and he rises to a place of power. In the Old Testament, we're meant to read the story of Joseph and the story of Daniel together. Both of those stories help us to understand what it looks like for God's people to remain faithful to him in situations where everyone else around them is turned against the Lord. So that's our question. How do we live for the Lord in the 21st century in a world that is opposed to him and opposed to his ways? If you got a bulletin as you came in or or one of the worship guides as you came in, if you turn it over to the back, there are just a couple of notes that you can see that kind of guide us through this last part of the sermon. We're just trying to ask ourselves, here's Daniel 1. Here's this famous story of Daniel and his friends and them only eating vegetables and drinking water. But what does that have to do with us? The first thing that it has to do with us is Daniel 1 teaches us to trust the sovereignty and grace of God. Now I know that sovereignty and grace sound like thousand dollar church words, but they're actually very simple and they're very foundational for us understanding what it means to relate to God. Sovereignty, and I think this is on your notes possibly, sovereignty is just the idea that God is powerfully in control even when life seems out of control. The term sovereignty sometimes can cause confusion, but sovereignty is meant to be comforting and it's meant to be awe-inspiring. We see in the fact that God is sovereign that he is perfectly in control of everything that is going on. He understands it, he sees what's happening, and he is in control of the situation, which means that we can trust him. The other side of that coin is that God is gracious. If you look on your notes, God's grace is that he gives good gifts for his glory and the good of his kingdom. A God who is sovereign, who is completely in control, but who doesn't do anything with that power for his people would not be a God worth worshiping. It would be a God that was so distant from us that he had nothing to do with our lives. But God's sovereignty is shown in the fact that he gives his people exactly what they need. James 1.17 from the New Testament, every good and every perfect gift is from above. John 3.16, God's greatest gift. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Matthew chapter 7, verse 11 How much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts or good things to those who ask him? God, in his sovereignty, desires to give good gifts to his people. And he gives them exactly what they need to be able to follow him. And so the result of trusting God's sovereignty and trusting his grace is number two in your notes, which is just that if we look at the story of Daniel... We should know what it means to remain faithful to God, whatever the circumstances. For Daniel and his friends, and I think this will become even clearer in the years to come in our country. But for Daniel and his friends, there was no way for them to say that they believed something about God, and yet it not show up in their actions. In other words, their beliefs about God were not simply these private things that they kept in their minds, but they were beliefs about God that came out in their lives and the way that they lived their lives. Their belief about God's sovereignty and their belief about God's grace was shown in their faithfulness to God, the way that they stayed true to him even in difficult circumstances. 
Let me give you a way to kind of hone in on this in your own life. We are very prone to saying things like, if you really knew my circumstances, then you would know why I'm not remaining faithful to God. In other words, if you knew what it was like at my workplace, you probably wouldn't remain faithful to God either. Or if you knew what it was like at my school with my friends, you would know it's not easy to remain faithful to God either. Or if you knew what it was like in my house, at my home, you probably wouldn't remain faithful to God either. What we're doing is we're allowing our circumstances to determine whether or not we're going to be faithful to God. And let me just say, your workplace probably is a difficult place to remain faithful to God. And your school probably is a difficult place. And your home probably is a difficult place. But what Daniel 1 reminds us is it's not our circumstances that determine whether or not we're faithful to God. It's God's character. That he is sovereign. And that he is gracious. And that he is good. And that he is worthy of worship no matter what the circumstances of our lives look like. And the way that we get to this point of remaining faithful to God no matter the circumstances, the way we get to this point is we have to develop this foundation for our lives. Remember, Daniel and his friends are probably about 15 years old when they are sent into exile in Babylon. As 15-year-olds, though, this is not the first time that they started thinking about remaining faithful to God. They had been prepared their entire lives. They had been taught about the Lord. They had been grounded in Scripture. They had been prepared so that if they were thrown into a different set of circumstances, they had a foundation for their lives that was going to allow them to remain faithful. And I know it's obvious to us that this says a lot about grandparenting. And this says a lot about parenting. And this says a lot about teaching and education. That part of our role, in fact, it may be very the core of our role, is that we are helping our children and our grandchildren and our nieces and our nephews and our godchildren. We, we are helping them to form a foundation for their lives so that when the circumstances of life start to waver, when life gets hard, when you find yourself in school, when you find yourself at work, when you find yourself at college, then you have a foundation for your life that allows you to remain faithful to the Lord when those times come. Some of you in your lives recently have faced incredible suffering and you have faced incredible difficulty. And if you haven't, there's a good chance that we're going to run into that. And some of your workplace is particularly difficult and your home life is particularly difficult. But we don't allow those circumstances to determine whether or not we remain faithful to the Lord. Elizabeth Elliot who was a uh, well-known missionary and writer in the 20th century, she has a quote that I've come to really think about a lot lately, and it helps us to understand what's happening in Daniel. Elizabeth Elliot says that the secret of life is not me in a different set of circumstances. The secret is Christ in me. So I'll say that again because I know it's hard to kind of unpack. The secret of life is not me in a different set of circumstances. The secret is Christ in me. So we can't go around and say, if I lived in a different place, or I had a different job, or I went to a different school, or I had a different family, then I could follow the Lord. The only secret is Christ in me. 
that stability that comes from knowing that we have been made right with God, and that forms the foundation of our lives. As we conclude the sermon this morning, I want to point you to some verses in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, the whole uh, chapter is, is just something we need to glue, glue ourselves to. But look in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You can imagine Daniel and his friends saying that when they got to Babylon. He who did not spare his own son, but look at the word there, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Then we skip down a little bit further, and it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then look at how this chapter ends. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I don't know what your life circumstances look like right now. I do know that we live in a world that faces suffering, that faces sin. I do know that we live in a world that is opposed to the Lord and the ways of the Lord. But what we also know is God is sovereign. He is gracious. He is good. And that forms a foundation so that we can remain faithful to him no matter what comes. Because he will never, ever change and he will never, ever leave us. After I pray, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song about God's faithfulness together. During that time, if, if I can pray for you, if I can pray for your family, something that's going on, maybe at home or work, I would love to do that. After the service is over, I'd love to meet with you and talk with you about how the Lord is at work in your life. But let's pray as we conclude our time, and then we're going to stand and sing this song as a declaration of our trust in the Lord. Father, we thank you for Daniel chapter 1. We know that the difficulties we face in the 21st century, at work and at school and at home, they feel new, but they're not really new. Throughout all of history, people have had to understand what it means to worship you and to be faithful to you, no matter the circumstances. And God, I know that there may be people here who think, if I had a different job, if I had a different family, if I went to a different school, if something was different, then I would follow the Lord. But God, I pray that you would draw them back to yourself based on your sovereignty and based on your grace and based on your love that you've shown us in sending, giving your son, Jesus Christ, that that would be the foundation of our lives. God, I pray for the kids, especially the teenagers who are here this morning, who are the same age as Daniel and his friends were when they were sent into Babylon. God, that they would know that you never leave them, that you will always be the same in the midst of a changing world, and that they can trust you. And God, that they would pursue holiness each day of their lives. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.